last week we kicked off this new sermon series. We're calling it Heroin, Feminine Strength That the World Needs. And if you weren't here last week, I don't have time to recap all of that, but it was extremely foundational for everything that we're gonna do for the next several weeks. It's a really tragic thing when both conservative-minded people and more liberal-minded people reduce the essence of womanhood to external relationships and roles. And we talked last week about the fact that the Bible has some really great things to say about external relationships and roles, but the Bible doesn't start there with its theology of womanhood. The Bible starts with your essence as a human being in the image of God. And last week we walked through Genesis chapter one, through Genesis chapter four, and hopefully we laid a foundation for what it means to be a woman in the image of God who has the essence of image bearer that's the core of who you are. And if you didn't listen to it, if you weren't here, I think it'll be helpful and I encourage you to get it. Um, Today we're taking the next step and we're gonna talk about a lady named Esther. So if you got a Bible, you can go ahead and find the book of Esther. It's a hard one to find. It's between Nehemiah and Job. And it's not cheating if you have to go to the front of your Bible and find the page number. This is a hard one to find. And I want to say a couple of things about this before we dive into the book of Esther. The first thing I want to say is that this book is crazy. This book is bananas. This book is scandalous. This book is baffling. And it's crazy for a couple of main reasons. First of all, it's crazy because even though this book is in the canon of scripture, it doesn't mention God one single time in the whole book. And not only does it not mention God, it doesn't mention, it doesn't mention anything even related to religious things. Prayer is not mentioned. There's no miracles in this book. There are no sacrifices in this book. There are no angelic visitations in this book. This book, this book demonstrates like just the conspicuous absence of God on every page of this book. Now, the second thing that's crazy about this book is that the quote unquote heroes, and we're gonna talk about that in just a second. The quote unquote heroes of this book are at the very least, at the very least morally ambiguous. At the very most, they are really immoral. So it's difficult to read this book and say, oh, uh, be like Esther or be like Mordecai because there's things that they do in this book that just don't fall into the rubric of grace-driven moral behavior. Um, In addition, this is a book that a lot of different theologians throughout history have just not liked. Uh, Martin Luther hated this book along with James. Uh, he, He was right about a lot of things and wrong about other things. Martin Luther said this, I am so great an enemy to the second book of the Maccabees and to Esther that I wish they had not come to us at all. For they are full of too many heathen unnaturalities. Like he just read this book. He's like, I have no idea how that fits into the redemptive story of God. Let's kick this one out of the canon of scripture. Now, the second thing I want to say up front is that though this book is crazy, it, it is God's word. It is included in canon, and because it is God's word, there's a couple things that are happening here. First of all, there is the divine author, and there's the human author. The divine author is God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit inspired this book. God the Holy Spirit protected this book. God the Holy Spirit added this book to the canon of scripture, and when God the Holy Spirit does that, when he includes books like this in the canon of scripture, it carries the weight of his authority and his grace for his people. So this book is beneficial for you. This book is good for your training, and it also has a human author. So all books of the Bible were written by God the Holy Spirit through inspiration, 
And he used human authors to pen these works. Now, we don't know who the human author of Esther is, but this book is both true and it's literature. It's true and it's literature. And it's important when you're reading the Bible to remember both of those things. It's true, but it's also literature. And because it's literature, the author has a particular style. The author is picking certain things to include, and he's picking certain things to leave out, and he's using certain literary devices to try to communicate things that are true and beautiful to us. In this book, we have the author use tons of irony. Like, in truth, this is one of, if not the, funniest books of the Bible. And at first reading, you're like, I don't think this is funny. And then you start digging into some passages, and it's just hilarious, the twist and the turns and the irony and the way that the author explains radical reversals of fate in the lives of these characters. So that leads us to the third thing. This book is crazy. This book really is God's word. And thirdly, um, this book was written about a time in redemptive history that roughly corresponds to what Ezra wrote about in the book of Ezra. So it's basically the same time frame. And here's what happens in the book of Ezra. The children of Israel who received the promise of God through Abraham, that God would bless the nations through a Messiah that would come through their line, that they would be his covenantal people. The children of Israel rebelled against God repeatedly. And the prophets warned that in their rebellion, they would be sent into exile. Well, that happened. They were taken into captivity in the Babylonian empire. And over time, what happened is that Babylonian empire gave way to the Persian empire. And during that time period, the Persian emperor actually started sending different people groups back to their hometowns that had been vanquished to reestablish culture. And so here's what happens in the book of Ezra. It's crazy. All these Jews are returning back to Israel and they had forgotten the law of God. They had forgotten the sacrifices of God. And so Ezra is about the Jews in Israel sort of, sort of, having this shift of identity from being more like the pagan peoples that they lived among to going back to being Jewish in tradition and Jewish in faith and keeping the law of God. Now, the book of Esther is really interesting because it's not about Jews that are returning to Jerusalem. It's about Jews that are staying in Persia. And in particular, it's about Jews that are staying in the capital of Persia, a city called Susa. So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to try to tell you this whole story. It's 10 chapters. There's like 50 things I want to talk about with this book. Uh, I can't talk about 50 things and that'd be beneficial to anybody in this room. So I'm going to try to focus on a couple of things and I'm going to commit to you that God willing in the next several years, we'll preach through this whole book and we'll camp out and we'll give it the time it deserves. Okay, a couple things. First of all, I want you to see the story and, and I'm going to butcher so many names. So if you're a biblical scholar, give me some grace. Esther chapter one, starting in verse one. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now, you might not know who this Persian ruler was. He's also known by his Greek name, Xerxes I. Uh, you might have remembered the documentary that was about him, 300. <laughs> I, have a little, I have a little clip, I think, if you guys could throw that up there. Yeah, 
Same, same dude. This is the guy we're talking about. And we, we actually have some really interesting historical writings about this guy that come outside of scripture. There was a Greek historian known as Herodotus that wrote about all the wars between Persia and the Greeks. And he said a couple of things about this guy. He said he was the tallest and most handsome of all the Persian rulers. And he said he was one of the most ruthless warriors and one of the most jealous lovers that Persia had ever seen. But that gives you a clue into the kind of guy that we're talking about. Now, let's keep reading. This is Esther chapter one, starting in verse seven. Drinks were sold or served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. The king has given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, uh, euphemism, read, blasted. <laughs> it's, he's, he's feeling it. He commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagatha, Zethar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown to show the people and, and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king based on his command delivered by the eunuchs, and the king became enraged and his anger burned against him, her, or burned within him. So here's what's interesting. Um, the king's trashed. All of his buddies are trashed and he gets the great idea. Let's bring Vashti in. She can take a couple turns and show my buddies just how fine she really is. And for some reason, she doesn't want to be paraded in front of the king and his drunk palace. So she refuses. Like, I can't imagine why. And the king is enraged. And here's what happens. Look at verse 19. He's advised by his advisors. They say this, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So I told you last week that this book is full of like sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the Persian, in the Persian empire. And that's true. It's true. And what you see here is this is during a moment where the king is trying to raise support for another campaign against the Greeks. And to get their support and to show them how powerful he is and to show them what the Persians think is beautiful, he's vulgarly displaying all of his wealth and all of his weapons of war and he's getting them drunk and he calls for his queen so that he can show off her beauty. It's all arrogance, pride, external power and external beauty. So he's advised advised by his buddies, pick a different queen. That's where we pick up in Esther chapter two. Look what happens here. Then after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus was abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men attended him and said, this is typical advice for a young knucklehead, let beautiful young virgins be brought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. 
And this pleased the king, and he did so. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jehokaniah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And the young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now look what happens next, verse 12. Now when the turn came for each of the young women to go into King Hazarus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period for their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ornaments for women, and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. And she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and was summoned, and she was summoned by name. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abigail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken care of her as his daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, And the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Okay, I want to stop here, and I want to point out four ways this is really like our story. And you may be thinking, like, this is not like my story. This is crazy. This is weird. This is culturally, but, but there's some things about what we just read that actually are a lot like our stories. And in general, it applies to all of us. And in particular, I want to talk to the ladies in our church. The first thing I want to point out is that Esther isn't the hero in her own story. Now, there's a really unhelpful way of reading the Bible that's super popular in this part of the world. And here's how it's read. The Bible is God's compilation of really great moral people And he gave you their example so that you can really try to be like them because they killed it in their morality. So here's the story of Abraham. Be like Abraham. Well, except for the part where he lied about his wife and essentially pimped her out to save his own neck. Or um, the Bible talks about David. David's a great example of morality and of godliness, except for when he committed adultery and murder. Now, If you try to take this story and you try to make Esther the hero of this story as a shining example of morality, you've got some real problems in the first two chapters. And the problems you have in the first two chapters is whether you're you're more liberal-leaning, whether you're more feminist or more conservative, like she just totally blows it. If you're a feminist and you just read this text, you'd probably walk away thinking the hero so far is Vashti. Like Vashti is the one that refused to be the king's sex kitten. She's the one that refused to be paraded in front of the king. She took a stand against patriarchy. She took a stand against misogyny. And Esther, she's a sellout to our whole gender. 
Like Esther jumps into the sex competition and make no mistake, that's what this is. Like don't read this and think, oh, well, the king had favor in her because this was just a really sentimental or supernatural thing. No, like the women could take into the king's bedroom whatever they wanted to take in. Now, that includes jewels and clothes, but that's also aphrodisiacs and ointments and things designed to aid sexual pleasure in Persia. And Esther's like, oh, okay, I'll go. And she spends five years, she spends five years after this night reaping the benefits of essentially becoming a sexual object for a pagan king. Now, if you're conservative, you have as many problems with Esther as more liberal people do. And the problems with your, if you're conservative is this, like, first of all, she is Jewish, she's Jewish, but she's keeping that secret under the orders of Mordecai, which means she's not following Torah. She's not obeying the dietary law. She's not keeping the festivals that the Jews were supposed to keep. She's not being pure and upright in the way that she dresses and behaves in the harem of the king. And not only that, it gets even worse. If you're conservative, she's violating Torah. She's violating Torah by actually having premarital sex with a guy who's also a pagan. Like that's, that's a violation of God's moral order in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And not only that, but the worst, the worst if you're conservative is not only does she have sex with this guy, but in addition to that, she enters into marriage with an uncircumcised pagan. Now, at the same time that this is happening, Ezra is back in Israel and he's going crazy because Jewish people keep marrying pagans and the result is that their children don't know the law of God. So he is, he is forcing Jewish people and pagan people to get divorces to keep the purity of the religious life of Israel going. And here's Esther, she's marrying the most powerful pagan in the land. So it's really difficult to read the story and say, okay, the moral of this story is always obey your crazy uncle. And if you're in a sex competition, win. Like that's not helpful. <laughs> that's not helpful. That's not advice I wanna give my daughter, right? But, but that's not the point of the story. That's not what it's about. That, that leads us to the second challenge in this book is that not only is she not the hero of her story, she is at least morally ambiguous. At most, she's downright immoral. The second challenge is she's just not control in control of anything in her life. Do you feel that? She didn't choose to be an orphan. That happened to her. She didn't choose, she didn't choose for Vashti to refuse the king. That happened to her. She didn't choose the king's edict. She didn't choose to be gathered up. She was taken to the harem. So you get that sense of, oh man, this is the lady who has things in her life outside of her control, dictating her destiny in really profound ways and in ways that feel like a violation of self. She's out of control. And I think for many of us, like we feel that right now, correct? There's things that have happened to you due to sometimes your sinful choices, due to sometimes the sinful choices of others, due to circumstances. There's things that have gone that have gone down in your life that you never would have chosen. Like there's so many dead dreams in this room, correct? Well, that's the story of Esther. She wasn't in control of her life. And that leads us to the third thing. Esther's caught in a clash of cultures. She's caught in a clash of cultures. The writer of this book tells us that she had two names. She has a Hebrew name, Hadassah. She has a Persian name, Esther. Hadassah and Esther. 
See, here's what's happening. Though her ethnic heritage is Jewish and her religious roots are Jewish, she was raised in the belly of the beast. She was raised in the Persian empire. She's more Persian than she is Jewish culturally. She speaks the language of Persian. She's been affected by the values of Persia. And you're invited in this text to feel the conflict of having your identity as one of God's covenant people and your identity as a citizen of your city and world. You're invited to feel just how difficult and conflicting that is at times. To be a follower of Jesus and a citizen of Oklahoma City, that's hard to navigate. To be a single woman that loves Jesus and a single woman in this cultural moment, that's really hard to reconcile. To be a married woman that loves Jesus and a married woman in our culture that tells you to find your value and identity from like mommy blogs that talk about if you're not quadruple varsity in your craft skills, like you're less than, it's really difficult. And the book of Esther wants to be honest about that, that it's difficult to navigate that tension. And that leads us to the fourth thing, which is by far the most important. Esther's story is like ours because God is just conspicuously absent in her story. She's part of the exiles, guys, which means due to their sinful choices, God has allowed them to be taken into captivity and her and the other Jews, many of them would have been wondering, does God even care about us anymore? Is he going to keep his promises or have we gone too far? Is he going to keep his word? Does he still love us? Does he still choose us? Does he still want us? There's no miracles mentioned in her life. There's no moment where a prophet speaks to her. There's no moment where an angel visits her. She's trying to navigate life and God just seems really silent. I think for many of us in the room, that's what we're feeling. Where are you? Where's your voice? Where's your leadership? What am I supposed to do? What's your will? Should I marry this person? Should I do this career? Should I engage in these relationships? What am I supposed to do? Would you just talk to me? In the book of Esther, God is conspicuously silent. Now, we're going to answer, I hope, we're going to answer those four tensions. We're going to address those four tensions. We're going to talk about what the author of this book wants you to see. But we can't do that unless I briefly tell you the rest of the story. So let me tell you what happens next. Crazy, crazy, random circumstances happen in this book. And I'm using that term uh, very loosely. Random things happen in this book and circumstances conspire to use Esther to actually deliver the people of God from destruction. Now, here's what happens. First of all, Esther's uncle happens to overhear a plot between two eunuchs to assassinate the king. He goes to Esther, he tells her about the plot, she tells the king, rescues the king, intervenes, and the king just randomly happens to forget to reward him. That's going to become really important in the rest of the story. Then, randomly, there's a guy named Haman who becomes the king's right-hand man. And this guy, Haman, has an encounter with Mordecai that leads to attempted genocide. Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. Haman is so arrogant and full of self that he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai. He wants to kill all the Jews throughout the entire Persian empire, threatening the promise of God to bring a Messiah, a rescuer, a savior into the world through the Jewish line. Then Esther, Esther decides to identify with God's people and come out of hiding. And then the turning point of the whole book that's so random, the king has a night of insomnia 
Like, this is so random. You can't make this up. This is the shifting point in the whole story. The king can't sleep one night, and he goes and he basically opens up the court documents of Persia, and he reads where Mordecai was never honored for exposing the plot to assassinate the king. This leads, this leads to the most hilarious shift in the whole book where Haman, who's planning to kill Mordecai on a gallows and has all of these things he wants to do to the Jews, gets flipped on its head and everything Haman planned for Mordecai happens to Haman. And everything that was planned for the Jews happens to the enemies of the Jews. Now, here's what I want you to see. In a lot of ways, this book is about what culture says is beautiful and what God says is beautiful. In Persia, it was all about appearances and wealth and power and control. Now, I'm really glad that our culture is so different than what it was like way back then. (laughs) Aren't you grateful that we've evolved? Back then, a man was valued based on his power, based on his wealth, and a woman was valued based on her appearance. I'm so glad that things are different today. (laughs) That's the ethos of Persia. That's what Persia says is beautiful. And what this book is telling us is actually what's beautiful is the providential dealings of a sovereign God who is actually working in his conspicuous absence. He's working in places you would never expect him to work, like the belly of the beast, Susa, the capital of the Persian empire. He's working in people you would never expect, like a Mordecai, like an Esther. He's using people's choices that they're still responsible for, and yet, ultimately, God is weaving those decisions, circumstances, and choices into his redemptive history to accomplish his plans and purposes, See, let me put it to you like this. The random circumstances in this book that lead to God's fulfillment of his promise to bring us a savior through Israel include things like, if the king doesn't get drunk, the children of Israel aren't rescued. Like, just scratch your head with that one. If the king doesn't get trashed, which is sinful, if his choice that he's responsible for to get intoxicated doesn't happen, it doesn't set in motion the chain of events that puts Esther on the throne to rescue her people. In addition, if Vashti, if Vashti doesn't stand against the bullying decree of the king, we don't get Esther If Esther didn't win a sex contest with a pagan king, we don't get the rescue of the children of Israel. If the king doesn't have insomnia, if Haman doesn't build a gallows, if Esther's not willing to risk her life, the children of Israel are going to be wiped out. The author is showing us something that though God feels to be absent when you read this, and though it feels random, The absence of God is an impossibility. He's not the God of the deist that created the world and threw it out into space. He is both sovereign and he's good, which leads to the doctrine of God's providence. That he's working, he's working, that human beings are responsible for our choices, that we do make choices that affect people and outcomes, but even in the midst of that, God's providential dealings is shaping history to his desired end, and that includes individual histories of people that love him like you and me. This is why, this is why Romans 8.28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
No, we lessen the all things. We say some things, but scripture says all things. Is it possible that a providential God can take your devastating divorce and turn it into a part of his redemptive plan for your life? Is it possible that a breathtaking bereavement can be a part of God doing something that ultimately is going to be glorious and wonderful and good in you and through you? Is it possible that a shattered dream, is it possible that circumstances that were out of your control that left you wounded and hurting and bleeding, is it possible that God might just be big enough to keep his word and work all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose? That's the doctrine of God's providence. And it's so breathtaking because it means this, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, not even Persian kings, not even decrees of genocide, nothing, not things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, this book is about something way more beautiful than having the good life as deemed by culture. It's way more beautiful than having the physical appearance that culture says is beautiful or the bank account that culture says is beautiful. What this book is showing us is that what's truly beautiful is to find your identity as one of God's covenant people who he's not gonna abandon and leave even when it seems like he's gone silent. That's what's beautiful. Now, to show you what this does in Esther's life, there's a grace turning point. And every character in the Bible except for Jesus is a human being who is sinful and weak. And they're all telling us about God's grace, his love, his mercy for his enemies that he brings to us through Jesus. And in Esther's story, there's a grace moment in chapter four that becomes the turning point for her life. Look at chapter four, verse 12. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Let me back up. The decree to kill all the Jews has gone out. Mordecai is fasting. He's lamenting. He's weeping outside of the gates of the harem. Esther hears about it. She spent five years as the queen. She likes the clothes. She likes the food. She likes the royal treatment. And she hears that her uncle is outside in sackcloth and he's weeping and she sends messengers to him with clothes to basically not complain, put on the nice dress because we don't want to lose all that we have. Here's what's going to happen. Esther told them to reply to Esther. Do not think yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. 
See, here's what's happening here. Something dramatic is shifting in the life of this woman. What's shifting in the life of this woman is instead of her identity being formed by all of the things that Persia says is beautiful, she's gonna find her identity as a part of the covenant people of God. She's gonna see herself as a part of God's people. What that means is in this moment, she's looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promise that God would bring a rescuer through Israel and she's believing it. Karen Jobes is a Wheaton professor, really brilliant, wrote a fantastic commentary on the book of Esther. And she points out that after this moment, something profound happens. Esther is mentioned by name 37 times in the book of Esther. Of those 37 times, only 14 times she's called Queen Esther And all but one of those references occurs after this shift. So she starts being called by this name, Queen Esther, this title. And she goes into the king's palace, into his presence, risking her life for her people dressed in royal robes. What shifts in her life is profound. She finds her identity as part of the covenant community of God, believing in his promises, even though she can't see them yet, even though they're not there yet, even though God's voice seems silent, she believes in his promises. And as that happens, it actually changes her from consumer that sees beauty as defined by the world to contributor that sees beauty as God's providential grace that protects and keeps his people to the end because he said he would. What happens is Esther, Esther experiences an awakening of grace. Hannah Moore, or excuse me, Hannah Anderson, who wrote Made for More, says this. This then is the promise of the gospel. You will find yourself by losing yourself in him. When you commit yourself to Christ, he will make you the purest, most authentic version of yourself. I saw a church sign in South Carolina this week that in essence said, um, self has to die to follow Jesus. And in one sense, that's true. We are to die to ourselves. But the irony is the more you die to yourself, the more the grace of God actually makes you yourself. See, we don't believe that you're gonna get caught up into nirvana. That's not the end game of God, that you become um, not personal, and you're just a part of the energy force of the universe, what we believe is that the grace of God makes you fully you, only more like Jesus. And that happens to Esther. Hannah goes on to write, as he removes your sin, he'll strip away the other things that have kept you from reflecting his glory and having your existence illuminated by his. As he does so, you will regain a complete sense of self. You will finally become someone who can embrace your unique identity in order to display the riches of his glory, in order to love him and to serve others with humility and grace. Esther sees herself as a part of God's covenant community and it actually gives her the royal robes that she needs to give something away. Here's what's breathtaking. When Esther's identity gets changed to be defined by God's promise of grace, What happens is this, she actually starts to reflect something of the Messiah that she's believing in. See, Esther, Esther is one of the types and shadows of Jesus we have in the Old Testament. Esther goes into the king, she goes into the king who wants to annihilate the Jews and she actually goes into the king at risk of her life. She sacrifices 
her position and her security to rescue her people. Jesus is a better Esther that actually doesn't just risk his life. He lays down his life to redeem his people, to absorb the wrath that we deserve, to make it possible for us to be called the friends of God. What happens here is Esther is changed in her identity. Her garments are changed. And now all of a sudden, vocationally, the grace of God is enabling her to actually stand up with dignity and confidence, not in self, but in God, and to lay down her life for the blessing and benefit of others. So what does this mean? Well, let me land this by saying four things to my sisters. We started with four things. Esther is not the hero of her story. She's actually got a lot of flaws and problems. And Esther's not in control. And Esther is experiencing a cultural conflict between am I Hadassah or am I Esther? And and God seems absent. So in light of that and this story, let me say four things to my sisters. Number one, Jesus is a better hero for your story. Because as long as you're putting the pressure on yourself to either be really religious and try to get to God or really important with what people say about you or your physical appearance or being beautiful as it relates to career or having the perfect family, as long as you're trying to clothe yourself with your own strength and identify yourself based on your own works, it's never going to be enough. It's never going to satisfy. It's never going to fulfill. It's never going to change you. Jesus being the hero of your story means that you actually get to own all of your story because it's the story of grace. It's his love pursuing you. It's his love that changes you. It's his death in your place that means your identity is renewed. It's his resurrection that brings you life. Ladies, please, please, please let Jesus be the hero of your story. Don't live the exhausting life of having to compete and compare in all the different areas of your life to find your essence and value. Come back again and taste of just how breathtaking grace is. Grace is awesome. What what did Esther do to deserve any of this? Nothing, man. She broke Torah seven ways from Sunday. She sinned against God. Did God meet her and use her? Yeah, why? Because that's what he does. He's gracious, he's merciful, and her grace is received looking ahead to the promise of Jesus. We actually get to look back on the fulfillment of the promise. Secondly, sisters, I would say you aren't in control of your life, and that's actually good news. You aren't in control of your life. But because of the goodness of God and because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the guarantee you have, the guarantee you have, is that though you're not in control of your life, there is one who loves you and he is. And his providence means even those chapters that you wish never happened, even those moments that were painful, even the things that you chose that brought devastation or somebody else chose that brought devastation, God is so big and so glorious, he's able to redeem and rescue everything and turn it into good. Now, Some things are so devastating, you're never going to see possibly how it can be redeemed until you see Jesus face to face. That's why we have this treasure in earthen vessels. There's just some things, there's some things in my life I look back, I'm like, how how are you ever going to redeem and rescue that? 
There's going to be a day where you're fully clothed with God's glory. And even those tears are going to be wiped away. It's good to not be in control of your life. And some of you are trying to be in control of your life and it's exhausting. This means, ladies, you don't have to live in constant fear of the will of God sneaking by you in the middle of the night. Yes, fear God. Yes, read his word. Yes, be in community. But you don't have to live with constant anxiety as if your future and your story is determined by your ability to get every single thing right. He's working. And you can believe that and you can rest and you can trust him. When Nancy and I first got married, we were so anxious about the will of God. We were anxious about it. Is this his will? Is that his will? What are we going to do? What if we blow it? What if we miss it? What if God sneaks his will by us? Well, the doctrine of God's providence invites people to not be anxious, but to be really grateful when things are good and to be really full of peace when things are bad because God's sovereign and he loves you. And hear me, it's every week as we break the bread and drink the wine that we get to look back on the covenant God made with you at the cost to his own son, which means you can believe him. Esther had to look ahead by faith. We get to look back by faith. Jesus has come, you're his. He's the author, he's the finisher. Thirdly, I would say to my sisters, like like Hadassah, who's also Esther, you're also caught in a really difficult clash of cultures. Am I more Esther? Am I more Hadassah? I feel so deeply for the single women of our church because the message of culture to you is so conflicting. It's like simultaneously marriage is the enemy. It'll take your freedom. It'll take your joy. It'll take your independence. And the message is marriage is everything. and You're not a person until you get married. What a conflicting message. How do you navigate as a woman of God in a culture that has that message in a swipe right and swipe left tender culture when it relates to dating that says sex is a commodity that should be traded or it's a, as one writer put it, it's a happiness technology that you just need to master so that you can feel more fulfilled. How do you navigate that as, as a Hadassah and an Esther? You're inundated with culture, you're in culture, but you're part of the covenant people of God. How do you figure out what to do and what choices to make? The Bible's honest, that's really difficult. It's really hard. Sometimes we're so caught up in the flux of culture, we don't even know where we're thinking more like Esther than a Hadassah. And that leads us to the fourth thing, and this is the best news ever. God is often not seen or felt, but he's never absent. Thank God we have his word to read, but even in that, there's times where you read it and you don't feel your heart coming alive and you don't feel the presence of God. Some of you that have just been praying for years, I need you to talk to me. I need you to speak to me and You're trying to pursue and you're trying to worship and you're trying to trust and it just feels like he's a million miles away. There's some of you that your life just seems like it's random circumstances and random experiences and most of them are difficult and frustrating and painful. And you're just wondering, where is God? Is he absent? Has he forgotten me? Has he abandoned me? Is my exile because I've sinned so much that he can't love me and can't be with me? And the story of Esther reminds you, along with the entire rest of the Bible, that he can't forget you. 
Sometimes you don't hear him. Sometimes you don't see him. Sometimes there's even such a thing as a dark night of the soul. But there's never a time, there's never a time where the living God can forget or abandon his children. The scripture says, can a nursing mom forget her baby? Sometimes. But I will never forget you. How do we know that? The cross. When I feel like God's not with me and he's not talking to me, the answer is not to try harder to work up an emotional feeling. The answer is to go back to beholding the splendor and the horror of the cross and the resurrection. Oh, he does love me. That's how much he loves me. Oh, his grace is real. Oh, he is not going to forget me. Oh, I am his. Oh, he will work all things together for good. Oh, to be in Jesus means nothing can separate me from his love, not even my sinful choices. So, ladies, ladies, the message today is not go and try to figure out how to be more like Esther. It's not a helpful message. The message today is what's more beautiful than all the things the culture says is beautiful is the providential love of God that's rooted and grounded in grace that you get to partake of as a part of his covenant community that gives you new clothes to wear for the blessing and benefit of others, that gives you hope when God seems silent, that gives you help when you're conflicted in the cultures that we're a part of, that actually helps you figure out what does it mean, what does it mean to actually walk with God even when I don't hear him as clearly as I want to.